What got you so passionate about speaking? Why do we speak in public? What's the number one purpose? For me, it's, for me, it's to share a message. What's the purpose of sharing that message? To, to, to teach a lesson. What's the purpose of teaching that lesson? To help other people. To motivate change. Okay, to motivate change. The number one reason that people get on stage and speak is they're trying to motivate that crowd to make a change. What's up, everybody? Thanks for joining me again on the Eric Fierro Podcast. I'm excited. I have another great guest here in studio with me, the one and only Tony Merwin. Tony, thank you for being here today. How are you, my friend? If I was doing any better, I would probably be twins. Nice. You have a speaking engagement tomorrow here in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, I just took advantage of that opportunity to bring you over mm -hmm. because I wanted to spend some time with my good friend. And uh, go over a couple of things that I think are, you know, not only on my mind, but on other agents' minds. But on top Ooh. of that, we're going we're gonna to dig a little deeper into who Tony Merwin is today. Uh-oh. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be raw. We're going to be intense. Hmm. Yeah? All right. Yeah. All right. Bring all right. it on. All right, right. So let, let's, let's start first. Let's just get it out of the way. Okay. I want to know, you keep your eye very close to what's going on with, the regulations coming out that could affect us as agents because you have an agency as well, but you have two sides of the coin because you're also in the position of that of a recruiter, of an FMO, uh, of an agency that works with agents. So if some of the proposed proposals that uh, have been shown to us by CMS go through, and it does indeed affect what's going to happen with how us as uplines would get money, you know, compensation, what would you say is going to be kind of like your plan B in a worst case scenario situation? Well, if it's worst case scenario where somehow they completely wreck the entire Medicare industry, and I don't think they will, um, I really don't think they will, um, then it would be a simple shift for me because the specific space in Medicare that they would wreck would just be the Medicare Advantage and Drug Plan area because that's the only area that that CMS has under scrutiny yeah. very hard, right? There's a ton of products outside of that space that have zero effect on those regulations. Hospital indemnity products, cancer heart stroke products and critical illness, dental, even Medicare supplements, etc. That entire product line is totally eligible and truthfully, there's money to be made in that selling those products to the Medicare Advantage policyholders. So if they wrecked it where it wasn't profitable for me to sell Medicare Advantage plans, no problem. I'll just sell these products to all the Medicare Advantage policyholders Yeah. because the majority of agents, the vast majority of agents are one-and-done agents. They're just selling the MAPD, and they're getting out of town. Yeah. They're not taking time to make sure that person is truly taken care of with these ancillary products to really tighten up their healthcare package. Right. So in my opinion, I would just shift to that specific market. I already know those products really well. We're selling them to our current client base. So now just keep drumming up basically the same type of leads, but that's my product line that I'm shifting to. Which is meaning, again, you're going to be continuing to support insurance agents 
as you do now, but instead of getting them contracted and supporting them on the MA side, you're going to instead do ancillary products, Medicare supplement products, and still support them the same exact way. Yeah. So I would just shift in the ancillary side and the life insurance products and, again, still have the wholesale opportunities where I can support and work with agents. The reality is there's so many agencies that I've known of since I've, you know, coming up in this business. I've, in fact, our our marketing organization that I worked for for 12 years, that's how we really made a footprint was in the Medicare supplement space more than anything. Yeah. And so a lot of our residuals came from Medicare supplements and not even Medicare Advantage, although it started growing towards the end of my tenure there. Um, I really I really think that it's it's greatly possible to make an incredible living still. I agree uh, 100%. Know, from the other side. It's absolutely possible because and, – and the reason why is because any market that you're trying to sell to or sell in – you're never getting 100% of the market, but if you look at the size of Medicare, by the time we get to 2030, there's going to be 80 million of them. Mm. If you can get 10 or 12% of that market, not even that much, you probably only need about 1% of it that you can penetrate and get all of those people signed up with hospital indemnity or Medicare supplement or cancer, heart, stroke. You're going to do just fine. Yeah. Just fine. Yeah. I think the one thing that many agents would have to hone in a little better on that maybe they don't have such a good skill in right now is if you're if you're having to offer a product that actually has premium involved you're going to need a little more sales skill right because right now a lot of us are just used to hey here's a zero premium plan let's stack benefits against each other and you're basically just saying which free plan do you want and Correct. it's just that's not really there's no sales skill involved in that but to sell something with a premium that's where it gets a little more Challenging. Certainly, that is true to a to a large degree. I mean, even if you're selling a zero premium enrollment on a Medicare Advantage, you still have to get them to know, like, and trust you because their health plan affects their life, and they want to make sure they're with someone that – or at someone that they can trust that is guiding them correctly. So you're still getting that know, like, and trust part of it out. But, yeah, if you don't have the skill set to go ask for money – ask for a premium check and yeah i need it right now <laughs> we have to pay the first month's premium now to even get the policy in force if you like that skill set then yeah it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle yeah but that's something that can be easily learned it's it's not that difficult to show the benefits prove the need and then ask for the money yeah 100%, that's all it is 100 so in in terms of what do you think some other do you think all fmos would see that as an easier route to just start recruiting more towards med subs and ancillary products versus getting in the call center space instead, like having their own LOA shop that they're going to start up to to try to gain back the revenue and sell direct-to-consumer direct, direct to consumer Medicare Advantage product? I think ultimately the answer to that question comes down to how that regulation shakes out. Yeah. If it shakes out to the point that it's not – that there's no override structure, like or very, very, very minimal override structure in the Medicare Advantage world – then, yeah, I could definitely see them to saying, hey, we'll just create our own LOA shop, and then we'll pay them a reduced rate because we're providing all the leads, CRMs, tools, et cetera, and, you know, make it a 50-50. Maybe they're getting a 30% commission. I don't yeah. know. And then the FMO is obviously getting the larger share by being the support mechanism. I could see a lot of them going that way. And I could see others are saying, nope, we're just going to shift to these alternate product lines that Maybe we already know because most of the big FMOs that are selling Medicare Advantage, they're also selling hospital indemnity, cancer, heart stroke, final expense, annuities. So they'll just say, well, we just shift our market back to the products that are making us money yeah. that are viable. 
so 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 yeah it sounds like you don't think that there would be much much in the way of them turning into competition more in the way of they're just going to still focus on what they do best which is the recruiting aspect and yeah. support i think ultimately that that would be the case but i also don't think that cms is going to come i think there's a lot of fear-mongering going on that they're just going to wipe everything out yeah in my opinion i i do think maybe long term there is a big play where they're going to push us into smaller distribution channels where most or a lot of agents are pushed into an LOA relationship, right? which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I was LOA at Precision Senior Marketing, even though it's a wholesale marketing position and still LOA. Dude, I had a great vested contract. I'm still getting paid on and I no longer work there. Yeah. So I hear a lot of people bag on LOA like it's blanket bad. Right. It's not blanket bad. It just depends on the relationship and the agreement that you have in place with that LOA group. Um, but I don't think CMS is going to wreck it in the worst possible case scenario. I think ultimately what's going to happen, they could very well create a new cap for the agent. So normally, right, and anybody that sells Medicare Advantage plans, they know that those plans are being subsidized by CMS, right? And we also know that every time CMS increases the subsidy amount, we get an increase in commissions. I think there's a good possibility they'll say no, you no longer get an increase in commissions every time we increase the subsidy. Yeah. This is the max amount you will ever earn going mm. forward. I think that's a good possibility. I also think they're going to cap the top level max amount because that's an issue. Yeah. There are carriers that are paying the NMO at the very top more with this carrier than with that carrier. Right. Right. So if I'm an FMO and I'm making more money and I'm just going to use arbitrary, I don't, this isn't necessarily factual. If I'm making more with WellCare than I'm making with Humana or UHC, then obviously as an FMO, I'm going to be pretty biased with getting my agents to learn to sell well care because yeah. my override's fatter. Yeah. Or maybe I, and this is where CMS's issue is, maybe I pull some override into co-op dollars to help that agent with his marketing with the guys that are like, hey, we kind of want to see some uptick on yeah. well care, bro. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's where CMS's issue is. So I think they'll probably cap, I think there's a good chance they may cap our commission forever until maybe in a later date they decide to give us a bump. But I think they might untie it from the subsidy increases and just say, nope, this is the amount you make until we say later. I think they'll cap the NMO override, and I think they'll wipe out HRAs, co-op dollars. Okay. You're no, more, no longer getting paid on HRAs. You're no longer getting paid if you recommend a value-based clinic because that's another spiff you can earn. Right. And there's no more co-op dollars to incentivize you to write one carrier over the next. I think that's probably what's going to happen. And that that in itself, though, can still change the game a lot, change the landscape a lot. It can. For me, it won't have a lot of effect because I don't – do I get co-op dollars? Yeah. And if they're watching this, <laughs> I'm not that honest with your co-op dollars. I'm just telling you right now. I know you gave me a whole bunch for one carrier. I wrote what's in the best interest of the client. I appreciate the money. I'm using it to grow my business. So yeah. if it means I don't get co-op dollars for that carrier next year, so be it. I don't rely on the co-op dollars. I don't need them to survive. I do appreciate them, though. Yeah. But I'm never going to be a biased agent regardless of how much money you pay me because today's money isn't what makes me successful in Medicare. Tomorrow's money. Right. Three years' money. Long game. Right. It's always the long game. I have to make sure that that client is happy with me regardless of what plan they're on. It has to be the right plan for them. Yeah. So – if a carrier wants to incentivize me, and there are carriers that I do get a better commission on than others because my contract's a little better, but I don't bias towards those carriers. Right. It's it's not the right play long term. Right. I'll win short term, but I lose long term. And I'm not in this for the short money. I'm in for the long game. 
So I've known you for a while now, and and I've seen in that time, like you you do have a heart for what we're doing, not only for seeing agents succeed, but also for consumers that you're trying to help through your other agency as well. And I I want to know because I see a couple of things out there in the in the in the world of of agents, regardless of niche. There's going to be that frame of thought where just like, hey, this is a great way to make money, and you know, the more people we can see, the more money we make, and it's really just money. Money is the the front of what they're talking about. And then there's the other side who's like, well, listen, the money's cool. I'm glad that it comes in, but I really like helping people. I really like seeing like the change it makes. You're that you're in the latter, and and I want to know like what is it that that gives you or gave you that heart for people the way you have it? Like what happened in your life that has given you that that type of caring? You know that that, that it takes to to truly be exceptional in this marketplace. It, definitely not one thing. It's a series of things over the years, truthfully. But I would say if I went back to probably the original thing was the example my dad set for me. My dad was a very servant-minded person. He loved serving, served in his church all the time, no matter what it was, whether it was helping parking, if we were at a bigger facility where we had people visiting and he had to help direct parking, being a deacon, usher, whatever it was. Like He was always one of the people that volunteered, whether it was youth groups or whatever. He always had a servant mindset, Uh, even to the point that he would see someone that's broke down on the side of the road with a flat tire. He would pull. He was the guy that pulls over and helps. Just them. like in the movies. Just like in the movies. He's the guy. And yeah. thankfully, nothing ever bad happened to him in any of those scenarios. But seeing how he served others is definitely where it originated in me. Yeah. You know, there's things that perpetuated it later in life. Um, and I would say, especially at the latest stage, uh, when I saw the situation that both my parents went through with their health care problems uh, in their last few years of life, that changed my perspective on the healthcare industry and what we do as agents, 180 degrees. Wow. Right. I had always worked in the client's best interest because I understood the long game. Yeah. And I knew that's where the money was ultimately. Right. So so don't get me wrong. Don't think I'm just the servant guy. Like I'm in trying to make a living too. And ultimately as an agent, if you're trying to grow a business, you have to be attentive in both of those sides. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to lead your business by serving people, but you need to be Pay attention to the money side of things, too, if you're trying to grow something. Right. You need to know how much you're getting paid. You need to know the metrics of all of that so you can build your numbers and create something that is duplicable. Because just doing it based off of just great service and caring about people isn't always duplicable. Because maybe you're doing it at a loss or maybe you're doing it at a smaller profit margin that you can't really grow. You're still probably doing great. But are you able to scale something big and massive? No, probably not, because you don't understand the real metrics behind your business and how helping people makes you money. Yeah, that you can grow it. So you got to kind of have your foot in both of those really well. And that argument's been played on Facebook quite a few times. Oh yeah. Um, well, because it, they, they do polarize it. You know, they basically say you're either one or the other. But you're explaining is there's a mid, mid, middle ground that's perfect where you have to, you're paying attention to both, and and yeah. by doing so, you by growing, help more people. Right. And that depends on the agent. If I'm just a single guy, and and I don't mean single guy like Mary, I mean I'm just a single salesperson, entrepreneur, whatever, in the, say, in, in the insurance world, you don't need to worry about it as much right. as long as you're profitable and you can pay your bills. Yeah. Then, yeah, you can just always focus on helping people and you're going to get yours. But if, on the other hand, you want to duplicate yourself and grow a business that actually runs like a business, 
then yeah, you got to pay attention to the numbers. Yeah, most people are going to probably cap out at about what five to seven hundred people they could serve by themselves before they need help, before they truly need help, yeah. or they just can't. Yeah, I would say yeah, probably into that three to five hundred mark is where you start to struggle to keep up with your business by yourself. Uh, and it's fun watching Grace go through that. She's got up to, she's up to about five or 600 clients now. I think 550 actually. Yeah. Um, so I'm watching her go through that struggle. So it's fun. I'm kind of, <laughs> awesome. I told her it was coming. I warned her three years ago. I'm like, there's going to be a day in your business that things are going to change. Yeah. And now you have a whole new problem and set of circumstances you have to deal with because you have a book of business that needs your help. Yeah. You're not just sitting there talking to new people all the time. Right. So I'm watching her learn that frustration. But thankfully, I was also. Pre- uh, preparing for it because I knew it would inevitably would happen. So we already have a couple of virtual assistants that work with us, and I kind of paved that way to make it easier for her. But nonetheless, yeah, she's starting to pull her hair out a little bit from that. And we would probably – would you suggest in most scenarios when you get to that point of growth where you need help that instead of you being the person who starts servicing and bringing on a salesperson, an LOA – that it should be reversed. Do you think it should be that you bring on someone who services so that you continue selling? Yes, the latter. You need to build a service team so that you can do what you do best. Um, I believe it was in the E-Myth by Michael Gerber that I was recently reading this, that he was talking about that. And he was talking, people have a business and they want to grow, right? Um, and no, actually I'll take that back. And I think he does preface in that book. It was Dr. Billy Williams, big PNC agent owns like 160 different PNC operations all around the U S he's, I think he's the only guy out there in PNC doing a billion dollars. Yeah. Like he's huge. And he was talking about that. He's like, so he's like, I wanted to get in the life insurance business. I wanted to grow my PNC operation and start selling life insurance. He's like, and I didn't get it at first cause I was trying to train all my PNC guys to sell life insurance. He's like, they know how to sell PNC. They don't know how to sell life insurance. He's like, so we didn't sell any life insurance because I kept trying to make them do it. And then yeah. finally I snapped and I'm like, what am I doing? I just need to go hire life insurance guys to sell life insurance and let these guys do what they do best. They do PNC. Same thing exists in sales and service. A great sales agent isn't always going to be a very good service person, <laughs> right? Because right? they're like, damn, why are you still talking to me? I'm trying to make money. Right. I got commissions bearing down on me. I have quotas to hit, things like that. So, yeah, if you really want your business to have a great process, then you should have someone that can help you or handle all of the service stuff. Uh, this is one of the things that I see in my partner, Joe Campert, and his agency, Redwood. They do great. They have a designated service team. All the agents do is focus on sales. Mm. When they get an inbound call from one of their clients, they're like, hey, great. My service manager is going to handle that for you. I'll bring him on the phone right now. And they get it back over to that dude, and they get back to selling. Yeah, that's awesome. So what would you say – in your agency, then, you have the service side, you have the sales side. Where does technology play uh, a part in your agency, and how important is it? Because I do, I do try to emphasize. Obviously, as a guy who is big in technology and offers a system, I still always try to like emphasize that this isn't the most important part of doing business. Like to to, to be honest, the, the most important part is your your dedication to working hard through, you know, hell or high water to make sure that you get to the point where you eventually can let your foot off the gas, right? Yeah. That's, that's I think, where it starts ultimately. Then obviously you got to figure out how do I get in front of people? How do I make presentations? Technology is important, but since you're established, since you've gotten to that point, 
how, how big a role does it play in what you guys are doing? It plays a huge role because uh, it, it, it comes in on the front end. It comes in on the back end. But ultimately, at least my belief in technology is it should be there to serve you to increase the efficiency of everything else you're doing. It shouldn't necessarily replace a, an individual or a person, but it should help make that person more efficient at what they do. Yeah. Right? Um, so, for example, we use it on the prospecting side. It helps us eliminate uh, unqualified prospects so that our agents are only talking to qualified people. So we use a lot of automation there to weed out the people that we shouldn't be even talking to in the first place, right? So that it helps the salespeople be more efficient. They're always talking to qualified people all the time. Yeah. So it trims their prospecting down to be more targeted, Yeah. right? And on the service side, it helps because you get automated welcome letters that go out to clients, policy renewal, notifications, all of those things. So my service person can very easily follow up on those and go, hey, you should have gotten your email today regarding your renewal notice or your welcome. It's got everything in there. And they can just go right through that email with them. Everything you need is contained in that one email. So in your agency, and, and the, the agency you have, the Goa Vila, um, how long ago did you guys start that one? Uh, Grace started it on her own in August of 2020. Okay. And then I joined uh, full-time in January 23. Okay. So she she was going at it for three years without you. You're obviously guiding because you know the business. Yeah, but, but I wasn't in the day to day every right, day like right. I am now. Okay, okay. So that so that, I mean, which is I mean, you must have seen a hell of a learning curve for her to go through that. But again, it's important you were there to coach and mentor. Mm -hmm. Who in your in your career would you say were the best mentors that you had coming up that got you to that point to the point where you're at today? The first one would be the gentleman that introduced me to Medicare in the first place, a guy named Joshua Vandenberg. Most people don't know who he is. He's super under the radar guy. Uh, he was the owner of Precision Senior Marketing before he sold his equity. Uh, and now he owns a 60-some-odd acre ranch out in Tennessee doing his thing, trying to become a farmer. But he was the first guy that, that after I had been in the business for about 14 months, I came in through a recruiting operation right? Kind of a masses of asses things. They bring you in, they give you a three-day crash course on their product, get you contract. And they're like, see those doors, take this book, go talk to them, sell insurance, have a great day. And that was the extent of it. So I didn't really know much about the true insurance world. I just knew what was in this book. Yeah. And I knew those were doors, go knock on them, show them this book, <laughs> make money. That was it. Yeah. When I met Josh and we met just by chance circumstance one day at a, at a club amongst, amongst a group of acquaintances, when I met him, he showed me everything about insurance. And when I say everything, he, he taught me that insurance was a business opportunity. So he kind of was the guy that kind of pulled back the curtain and explained what insurance contracts really are. And I'm talking about everything in insurance is contracts. I'm talking about the contract between the agent and the carrier or the agent and the agency. And he really explained the difference in the types of contracts that are out there. He explained that there is a ton of residual money. In these certain types of contracts, if you know how to vet them and you know how to find them. And he taught me all of that. He taught me how, certainly taught me Medicare, and he taught me how to nurture leads and how to really develop uh, a client or a prospect into a client. That dude changed everything for me. And I immediately started to work with him, right? It was almost just like the, the Wolf of Wall Street. You show me a check for 70000 I come work for you right now. <laughs> it was pretty close to that kind of thing. And I yeah. left Family Heritage immediately, went to work under his wing and for 18 years of my Medicare career, I worked in some capacity alongside him. That's a big deal. And he kind of brought me up. So yeah. he's a very close friend of mine, great dude all around. And that's definitely the first guy that really put me on the right path that helped me 
that showed me all the information properly, mm-hmm. right? Like didn't hide anything from me. Everything was super transparent and then let me kind of guide and kind of pointed me in the direction so that I could build my own path. Yeah. And then he just let me do what I want and he would check me check me every once in a while if I got offline and be like, no, 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 you're back, get it back over here. Yeah. You know, and check in with me and we're still good friends today. I call him and ask him questions and get his, uh, his information. He's a super process oriented dude. He's very much a geek as well. And that's how he grew PSM because he really understood the process and things. Yeah. He understood that the salesperson needs to be the salesperson. The service person needs to be the service person. The admin needs to be the admin. The commissions needs to be the commissions person. Yeah. Like he understood all that and that's how PSM was broken down. And that's how basically with 15 people, we were able to build a $50 million a year machine. That's amazing. That's amazing. So did being that he was your mentor for so long, right? That he always had a connection to you throughout your the majority of your career. Um, did you feel that for the most part you were pretty good on on mentorship? Like that you didn't need other types of mentors from, you know, there other- were other mentors. Some of them outside of the industry that I looked for, right? Things that can help me be a better person, better human in a lot of cases. Uh, but then there were also other people that. I would maybe call them loose mentors. People like Galen Hendricks, for example, right? Never worked for Galen. We've always been friends in the industry. I met her when I was super green behind the ears, didn't know anything, and certainly didn't know who she was. But then I found out very quickly when she walked in the room who she was. But she's been a friend of mine my entire career. And she's always been the type of person that I can call, talk to, ask questions to. Um, so she's kind of loosely mentored me and kind of kind of given me props and yeah. and encouraged me throughout my career. Um, there are other agents out there that I saw succeeding and understood what they were doing, and they would coach me to be a better wholesale distributor. So they taught me how to interact better with agents. Like, man, we appreciate you're trying to push these products out there, but like, you need to start thinking of this the way that we're looking at it as business owners in the insurance world. Yeah. So I paid a lot of attention to some of those guys that were really successful in the insurance space so that I could be a better marketer, better wholesaler and build my distribution. Um, who else can I think of? Cody Askins is somewhat of a mentor in some cases because he reminded me of how big the opportunity is in the business in the business world of insurance. Yeah, and kind of so I kind of give him credit for reawakening the tiger, so to speak. Yeah, because I had kind of gotten comfortable and gone to sleep. I was making a very good income with Precision Senior Marketing, had a vested thing, everything was clicking. Yeah, and my original goal, my original end game was to run that out for about another five years or so and then cash in my equity and go somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like be I was, done? Yeah, be pretty done. much be done and yeah. go find something else to do. Yeah. Um, but then I started seeing other people that were – I met Cody. I met Justin Brock. met you. I saw some other guys in the industry that were younger than me that were like, yo, there's a lot more still to accomplish if you want it. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I do want a little more. Yeah. I do want to push a little harder. I do want to have leave a bigger impact. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of rewoke. And then now here I am going to starting over again for the third time, but growing something much bigger. Well, let's speak about your impact like that you want that you want to leave. I think one of the ways that you have found to reach a larger audience is through speaking engagements. And mm-hmm. it's something that... I think both you and I are very passionate about is speaking on stages and, and being good at the craft, not just like going up and, and, you know, delivering some information because we know it, but actually being good at the craft and delivering it. Right. Um, what is it, I guess, like in that aspect, what got you so passionate about speaking? 
Why do we speak in public? What's the number one purpose? For me, it's, for me, it's to share a message. What's the purpose of sharing that message? To, to, to teach a lesson. What's the purpose of teaching that lesson? To help other people. To motivate change. Okay, to motivate change. The number one reason that people get on stage and speak is they're trying to motivate that crowd to make a change. That change could be buying their program they're selling from stage. That change could be learning to use automations better in your business. That change could be uh, stop selling this product and start selling this product or start selling both because they're conducive, whatever it might be. But the reason that people speak publicly to groups is to motivate change. And I'm not saying that from like, oh, every speaker is a motivational speaker. I don't mean it from that context. You're trying to get the audience to do something different than what they're doing today in their life, whether it be a business choice, personal choice, whatever it might be. So the number one reason we speak is to motivate change. And I believe that there is change needed in the insurance and healthcare industry, number one. And I believe that um, we need better leaders in this industry. Um, especially in the Medicare side of things, because if you look at some of the things going on in Medicare, and I'm not talking about the regulations and some of that stuff, but that's definitely a part of it. We need a group of new leaders that are ready to steward the insurance world to the next level, the next phase, right? Mm -hmm. And this is especially true in Medicare because the biggest problem that CMS has with the, with the Medicare group of agents is that there's a lot of complaints, and we probably know that most of those complaints are coming from some different offshore call centers and so forth, whatever. That doesn't matter. There's still independent agents that aren't doing it right and that are generating complaints. But over and above, Medicare's issue with us is because the client onboarding experience sucks. And if it continues to suck, then we're going to continue to get regulated. Right. Right. This is an old adage. If you can't manage yourself, well, then we're going to manage you ourselves. Right, And that's what CMS is doing to us right now. So we need new leaders that understand that and that are willing to push for change. Right, And this mm -hmm. is why I have such massive respect for Justin Brock because I think he is one of the best young stewards of the insurance and more especially the Medicare industry that I've ever seen. The average age of the insurance agent, especially the Medicare agent, is still 54 years old. And I'm still on the younger side of that slope, barely. Right? Mm -hmm. What's going to happen with all, and a lot of those guys are retiring, dying. They're, they're, they're tired of, they don't want to work harder now that the industry is getting more difficult. And especially now that you have automation, you have all these other tools that are going on that younger people are a little savvier with than some of the older guys. So a lot of these guys are like, you know what? I'm killing it. I'm good. I'm on my way out. Yeah. So there's a large chunk of agents that are leaving the industry because, one, they probably don't like the way that they see it's going with some of the regulations and changes, and, two, they're just not as hip with some of the new technology that's in insurance that helps agents that are 25 years old scale a business in just a few years to multiple seven figures. Guys like Josh Lustig, like what he's done is mm. asinine. It's yeah. mind-boggling, <laughs> right? I'm seeing guys that are younger – build businesses so much faster because they know how to embrace technology and make it work for them versus the old guys that are still writing a couple hundred apps a year the old school way. Yeah. So there's a group of guys leaving the business, and there's a group of agents that need to come in and steward this thing, and how do we get them to do that? How do we find them? How do we encourage them? We do it through speaking. We do it through public speaking, right? That's why Justin throws events. He wants to get his brand and his message out there, and he wants to people to understand, like, look, we're trying to impact this thing to grow something or to shape it into the space where we 
still maintain a great opportunity and they're not going to take it away from us. Because again, if the client onboarding experience continues to suck, we're going to continue to get more regulation until they eventually just take away the opportunity from us. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like a kid with candy, right? If they if all they do is sit there and eat candy all the day, eventually you got to take the candy away from them. Yeah. Kind of a pretty crappy analogy, but I think you understand what I mean. Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're left with nothing. Um, so... What specifically do you want to do the most, though, through your speaking engagements? Do you want to focus more on motivating insurance agents or helping consumers? Because I think one of the, you know, obviously one of the things that you also do is you run seminars, you mm-hmm. know. And so through that, that's technically, that's still a speaking engagement. Oh, 100% going up there and you're, you're trying to motivate them as well. I'm trying to motivate them to make a change. Right, To right. not go with that agency, but go with this agency. To not buy that product, but this product. To not trust him, but trust me instead. Yeah. Right, I'm motivating them to make a change. Get off your group plan and get on to Medicare. Why the hell do you enroll in COBRA? Get on Medicare. Whatever that might be. Now, by helping agents, I'm helping consumers too, though. Yeah, And this is one of the things I always understood when I was in wholesale. It's like if I, I can make an indirect impact on the consumer, if I can teach an agent how to be a better agent, how to understand the business better, how to understand the products better, how to understand how to discover what his client needs better, right? Yeah. And that was a big part of why I ended up getting into wholesale because I'm like, I, can, I felt like I could make a bigger impact at that level over consumers than if I'm just here dealing with consumers myself. Right. And still make a great impact, but it's only going to make an impact for me I and my that. business. Yeah. But if I can impact agents to make them a better agent for the industry, then now I can impact beneficiaries at a much different level. So when you speak of new stewards that are going to be coming in or that need to come in to help lead the industry to be better, you're, what is the main the main thing that they need to teach agents to be better at? Is it at just the whole process, the whole sales process, or is it the ethics part of it, the the morality? Like how, because going back to the complaints you're talking about, these complaints you're talking about, I think they kind of fall under like an ethical In some cases, definitely ethics, because there are definitely agents out there doing unethical things, 100%. I don't think that's the biggest challenge. I don't think that... There's that big a percentage of agents that are being unethical that it's making that big of an impact. Are there agents out there doing crap? But I mean, if you're an agent, if you're an individual agent and you're not following the rule of law, whatever, the ethics <laughs> of the game, you're probably, I mean, yeah, you're jacking over a customer here or there, but you're not affecting the industry as a whole. Okay. Right? You. It's the collective group of maybe unethical agents that might be having a bigger impact. Sure. Uh, and again, I have my own opinions about some of the call center stuff that's happening. I think ultimately that's the biggest part of the impact that's happening because there are definitely call center groups out there. And I'm not saying all call centers are bad, but I feel like these high volume call centers don't have the same motivation that an independent business owner agent does. Because most of the, I think most of the, the, the care for the consumer goes away, I think, in large call center environments because it becomes a lot more just about numbers. It comes about numbers. Like, hey, how many apps did you write today? Let's go, let's go, let's go. 
It's it's the same problem in the healthcare industry with doctors. That's why doctors are starting to look at value-based care where now they can spend 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour with their patient versus stuck spending five minutes of time because it's a volume thing. Yeah. They never get to know their patients that way. Yeah. And that's why there's this whole push to value-based care is to try to eliminate that problem. Same things existing here in these high-volume call centers. They don't have time to give a crap about the client because they have a quota to hit to get their bonus or get their volume play or whatever it is. So they're just ripping apps, and their only motivation is to rip an app. But so in, they're finding so, any possible detail they can to get that client from plan A to plan B, whatever it might be, whether it's the best interest of the client or not. So how do you – so how, it's almost like there's going to – they would have to be well, – like only a certain point that you can grow to as an operator because if you continue to scale your operation and you keep bringing on LOA agents to help you out to keep writing business, won't you end up being in the same spot at some point? No. So why, 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 te- why would, would teach it- a totally different core set of values? So you're basically saying then it, it, the problem is not even necessarily the big call center. It's the leadership at the top is, has the 100%. wrong, so it does come down they to have the, the wrong core set of morality, values. right? Yeah. They have the wrong core set of values. Their core set of values are like that market's huge. How fast can we get as much of it as possible? They're in it for the wrong reason. It's just money. It, and it's that's mostly it, backed by private equity. Yeah. What does private equity care it's just about? money. Do that's they it. care how healthy you are? Returns. They don't care how healthy you are. They just care what their return is because they have a bottom line to meet for their shareholders. Yeah. That's it. So it's all a money grab for them, right? The independent agent can't think that way. If he does, he's out of business. Right. He has to think, how do I take care of these people, get them what they want so they will trust me with their life? And that's how I grow as an independent business owner. So if you're growing an agency and you teach those core values to every one of your agents, hey, the metrics aren't about how many single apps you can rip. The metrics are now how deep can I penetrate that client with multiple policies and educate them on the type mm. of healthcare they really need. And for that, relationship is needed. And that relationship is needed. Absolutely. Versus just a one and done. Yeah. Solid. I think that uh, you know ultimately time's going to tell what ends up happening. And I think everyone's there. There are. I mean, you you, you can't lie. People are, are kind of on pins and needles who are in that in that seat right now of where they're making a good chunk of income from the MA override side. Yeah. And I feel for them. I feel for them. I get it. I get it. Um, but I guess this is just another. I've always kind of said this from from the time you understood that that CMS was pulling the strings with anything MAPD or PDP related. I've always said like, hey. You got any anything where the government is has so much control, you have to be very careful not to put all your eggs in that basket. You have yeah, to agree, you, you know. And, and, but I, I don't think a lot of people listen to that. I think they don't, they're just like, hey, they see the opportunity, they see the money, they just, yeah. you know, they try to build it up, and then something like this happens, they can just rock their world because they hadn't diversified. And again, when I say diversified, I just mean diversifying product. To the same consumer. I don't mean like, hey, diversify by being in real estate or you know, Right. Now diversify within the insurance world. You're already good at insurance. Learning a secondary product's not that difficult. Yeah. Just learning how to put it together, position it right, and, and close it for the right person. It's not like her learning a whole new business. But right? how hard do you find it when you're trying to train agents to actually adapt to selling multiple products? Like do you find that there's a lot of resistance? No, there's no resistance. The problem is the execution. But that's what I mean. To me, it's the same thing because if they don't, if they don't execute, it's like, well, you yeah. may have taught them something that they like hearing, but if they don't execute, there's it's, it's yeah. there's resistance there internally with themselves. Understood completely. So yeah, no, there is definitely a resistance there, and 
when you're dealing with independent agents that operate completely on their own, they're running their own game. I can coach them all day on how smart it is to talk about hospital indemnity to every single Medicare Advantage plan you close. And again, it's up to them to execute, right? If I'm in an LOA situation, like in my office, I have a little more control because I can hear them on the phone. I'm <laughs> yeah. like, what? you just, why didn't you say something? Yeah. And, and you I can, can, I can make it an issue. I'm like, if you don't say something about hospital indemnity to every Medicare Advantage plan you sell, I'm just going to take away the opportunity from you. Yeah, exactly. You're not doing what I'm telling you to do, right? You're not agreeing to the position requirements that I laid out for you. Right. Right. So anybody that comes in my office, they're going to, they have a position contract that they have to complete that explains exactly what their accountability needs are. This is what you're accountable to do as far as your position goes. Understood? Yeah. Cool. Now go out and do it. And if you don't do that, again, Go back to the kid with the candy. Actually, the better analogy is a toy. If he's abusing the toy, you take the toy away from him. Same concept. Yeah. If you're not going to treat it with respect, I'm just going to take it away from you. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. So at the end of the day, your ultimate plan, what is it? When, when you're when you're done with the insurance game, what do you want to do next? Um, we are going to open a nonprofit called the Judith Grace Foundation that is designed to affect change for underprivileged children and women. Oh, that's great. Anything from as small as helping kids get the school supplies they need or the shoes they need so they can go to school. Yeah. Uh, and, and our target is mostly, you know, underprivileged or third world countries where they don't have as much opportunity as they have here. But that's the plan. That's, that's the exit plan. strategy. That's a great plan. And, and are you going to operate that out of the U.S. or are you going to plan on relocating? Undecided there. Undecided. Because there is definitely a relocation uh, to Colombia, back to my wife's home country uh, in the not too distant future. So we'll have to figure out how that operates when it comes to managing a international nonprofit of right. some sorts. Right, right. That's awesome, brother. Well, again, I appreciate you coming out and spending some time with me yeah. and having this conversation. Um, I, I, I do think that a lot of agents are going to be edified by it because there's a lot of great, great information you've provided, a lot of great advice that you've provided. And I, I think that walking away from this, you know, one thing that that I want to tell you is that I really do value your friendship. I value what we've been able to, uh, not only in terms of the time we've spent together, but what we've been able to start doing together in our Invictus conference and and all the cool stuff we're doing with that. It's It's been a blessing. It's been a huge, huge blessing. And, and I'm really, uh, you know, I'm thankful that I get to experience that with you, man. So I appreciate that. And, and again, um, thanks for coming out here and spending some time with me. You are welcome, man. Anytime I get a chance to hang out with Eric Ferrari, you're one of my favorite people on the planet. I love you to death. I mean, you and Amelia Earhart, you guys are awesome. I love you guys. So I will always take time to come and hang out with y'all. Y'all are two of my favorites. Um, and, and the feeling is 100% mutual. Like what you and I get to do with Invictus, like that's the centerpiece of my year that I cherish so much. And I'm so yeah. excited for the next one. And it goes back to what we were talking about. How if would we be able to affect the change that you and I want to affect in the industry on that side in the Spanish market if we didn't start getting up in front and talking to them? No, no. That's why we speak in public is because we want to affect change. Amen. And you and I both have the same vision for what we want to see happen in the Hispanic market. We don't want them to get left behind, not just the agents, but more importantly, the consumers. Right. And we can lift up the consumers by lifting up the agents. Amen. Amen. All right, brother. Well, everyone else, thanks for tuning in and watching, and we'll see you on the next video. Take care.